find this. Okay, I wanted to start here with a little review to let folks know where we are. Um, we are about a little over one-third the way through the Bible in terms of volume, chapters. So those of you who have been here from the beginning, congratulations, good progress. Um, we first covered this section called the Law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Who wrote those books? Moses did. And what's another term for those books? Pentateuch. Pentateuch. Yeah. Um, then we've gone. In, we're, we're now in this section called the history, and we've done Judge, we've done Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings, and now we're in First and Second Chronicles. After First and Chronicles, we just have three books left to go in the history. Then the rest of the Old Testament will be other things other than history. Um, Let's look at it on a timeline. This is a timeline that my son Matthew put together when he was teaching the whole Bible. And um, now the early dates are just are just guesses. Um, but from where where we are right now is about a thousand BC, and that's a pretty accurate date historically. And uh, the the Bible covers a history from the beginning, from the creation, all the way up to the book of Revelation. Um, the book of Revelation predicting the future, but as far as when the books were written, they were written from about this point here where the law was written up to about 100 A.D., just past that cross there. Is that one... The, um, the first five books? Or were they right. right. Moses wrote the first five books, right here. That the, the uh, that's the picture of the Ten Commandments there, and that's a, when when they were wandering in the wilderness for the forty years. That's probably when he wrote the, the books. Yeah. Now the section we are in up here, you can see First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and you see how it's covering the same period, approximately as First Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. I'm going to zoom in on that area. We'll turn the whole thing on its side here. <laughs> and this area called First and Second Chronicles, again, you can see First and Second First and Second Kings kind of fit in the same area. We're we're covering the same history we've already been through in Samuel and Kings, um, written by a different author and and from a different perspective. Um, at the same time, let me point out that there's a bunch of other books being written that, at the same time. Um, when we get when we get into the prophets, Joel, Amos, Jonah, all these prophets, they all fit into this area of First and Second Chronicles. Um, so later on, we'll be doing the prophets, and we'll comment as we go through there about you know about when this prophet was written. Sometimes the prophet will tell you during whose reign it is. And you, you folks have the chart of the king, so hang on to that because you'll need to look on the chart to figure out when the person reigned. Because the person will never say he wrote in 850 BC. <laughs> he didn't know. He didn't know, yeah. <laughs> okay, now um, let me go back to our 
outline at the beginning. Okay. Um, why do I put First and Second Chronicles on the same chart? Because they were one book. Yeah. When they were originally written, they were all one book. Uh, when were they split into two? Yeah. When the when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, a couple hundred years before Christ, a translation is named the Septuagint. So. The, the original plan of the author was the whole thing. And so we've covered the first nine chapters were genealogies. And now we're in the section called the Reign of David. That's, that's the biggest section in, in Chronicles. Uh, you can see going from chapter 10 to 29, we're going to do a part of that this morning. Next week we'll finish it. And then in Second Chronicles we've got Psalms, right? We'll cover all that next week. And then we'll get into the kings of Judah. And finally, in the last chapter, it tells the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, we mentioned, the outline mentions the kings of Judah. What does that leave out? The kings of Israel. The kings of Israel, yes. Um, let me show you this. this. This chart here shows, first we have the United Kingdom. We're, we're doing David this morning, around 1000 B.C., his, the kingdom was still united under his son Solomon, but then after that it split. That's in, that'll be in the reading you'll be doing for next week. But the author of Chronicles only covers the left-hand side of this tree, which goes on past the bottom here. Uh, he covers the kings of Judah. As far as you, you, you would practically not even know the kingdom of Israel existed to read Chronicles. Uh, a lot of these names are never even mentioned in the uh, in the book of Chronicles. Can yes. That's a good. Uh, that's a good part of the reason. Yes, the temple was in Jerusalem. The 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 kings of Judah were more faithful than the kings of Israel, um, and the people. The, the Chronicles may well have been written by Ezra uh, after they came back from captivity. Uh, and the people that came back from captivity were almost completely descendants of the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. So let me just a little bit more review. We did this chart a couple weeks ago. The difference between Kings and Chronicles. They cover the same period, but they have a different emphasis. Whereas the book of Kings covers the history of both Judah and Israel. Chronicles covers only the history of Judah. The Kings deals with Prophetic history, major events that affect the what, what you might call even political history. Whereas Chronicles deals with sacred history, and you've probably noticed that now. You've read enough into Chronicles to know this is a very different book from Kings. Um, it deals with the temple, which we haven't. We're, we're going to talk a little bit about the temple this morning. It likes to talk about feast days. Sometimes an entire chapter will be will will be devoted to the observance of one particular feast at one particular time. Talks a lot, about, a lot about priests and also the religious reforms that the kings did. We haven't gotten into those yet. But we, we certainly have some, some discussions of priests uh, this morning. The kings includes personal stories like David and Bathsheba, a very famous story. You read Chronicles, you never know that that took place. Um, because from the standpoint of the Chronicles, that did not affect the religious history of, of the kingdom. 
Um, and so chronicles will cover personal stories that illustrate faith in God or that illustrate faithfulness to the law. And of course, David and Bathsheba didn't illustrate that. Um, and, and last but not least, Chronicles includes numerous genealogies and other lists of names, <laughs> at, which, at which point you'll say, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, Tracy. It's interesting that they, uh, the Second Chronicle, they go, they go in detail about the uh, Rainham and Nassim. Yeah, we'll get to that week after next. Um, yes. Um, you mentioned that when we did Manasseh and Kings, yes. You were bringing up details that weren't even in the story of Kings. <laughs> um, okay, so um, that gets us ready. So again, we, we last time we did Saul's reign, but in Chronicles, how much of Saul's reign is actually covered? Just his death. That's all that's covered. He's not a major player at all. But David's reign, wow. He's the, he's the main character in the whole book. In fact, later kings are measured compared to David. You know, They'll say that this other king was faithful, but not like his father David, or was faithful like his father David. And David is the standard for that. Um, in chapter 17, we're going to see one of the major reasons why that is. So let's look now at chapter 17. Uh, in the previous chapter, David did, David did something great. And what was that? He brought the ark back. Yes. He brought the ark back. We say back, actually he had never been in Jerusalem. He brought the ark into Jerusalem. It had been in someone's um, kind of their garage for decades now, and the, but it, it's now being brought into a place of honor. He built a, a special tent for it. I assume he built it just like the tabernacle, but it doesn't say. And brought it into the the city of Jerusalem. But this brings up uh, an issue that David has been thinking about, and, and what and David comes up with an idea. And what's that idea? Yeah, let's build a permanent building. Why? Why in the world were they using this portable tent anyway? Right. They built it when they were in the, the wilderness, and so forty years they had to carry it around um, because they they didn't stay in any one place for a long time. Um, but now they've been in the land, and they've been in the land for hundreds of years, and David has finally established the capital, Jerusalem, which is going to stay the capital for the rest of the time. Um, it's time to have a permanent location for the Ark of the Covenant. And that's going to be the temple. So David consults with who about this? Nathan. Yeah, Nathan the prophet. And what does Nathan say? Hey, that's like a good idea to me. Yeah, great idea. So... Um, but God doesn't let him stay under that misconception very long. And God appears to Nathan and says, here's what you're going to have to tell David. And so, he explains to David that it was good that you had this in your heart to do it, but you're not going to be the one to build this, this house. And God turns things around. Instead of David building God a house, what's God going to do? Build a house for David. 
Of course, God's using the term house in a little bit different sense. He's talking about house in terms of a family, a, a dynasty. And so he, he predicts the future of his house that God's going to build for him. And in verse 12, he says, I will establish his throne forever. Now, who's he talking about here? A descendant of David whose throne God is going to establish forever. Ultimately, it's Jesus. Now, but it doesn't, it's not only Jesus. Um, he, he, the initial fulfillment is in Solomon because Solomon was the one who built the temple for, for God. But ultimately, he's looking down for the descendant of David, who, who is Jesus, who's going to build the permanent house for God. And what is that permanent house for God? That's the church. Yeah. God's people are the temple of God. And the son of David is the one who built that. But God is the one who first built David a house. And we have an interesting principle here which I really think applies in every situation in our relationship with God. David, you see, got this idea, God needs a house. I'm going to build God a house. God says, that's good that you had that in your mind, but no, you're not going to do that. Um... None of us can do anything for God unless God first does something for us. And, and that's what's being shown here. Um, our relationship with God is not like our relationship with ordinary people. I mean, with, you, you have friends, ordinary people, and, and, and you think, well, you know, I'd like to do something for this person. And, and you do, and, and they appreciate it. But God is not someone who needs anything we can provide for Him. Everything we have comes from God. And if we are going to do anything for God, like build a house for Him, He first has to do something for us. It's all in His hands. And we even see that in the book of Acts when, um, when God was guiding the, the preaching of the Gospel. For example, um, in chapter 13, which we're almost to that in our Wednesday night class, um, the Holy Spirit said, separate from me Barnabas and Saul to the work that I have chosen for them. It was God who was picking the people to do the work. He was the one... In fact, when He had picked Saul on the road to Damascus, He had told him He was going to do this great work and now the time came and He's picking him. Um, everything we do is within God's will. And sometimes we may come up with ideas that God would say, I'm glad you thought about that, but you're not the one to do that. And if we're not the one to do that, we'll find out sooner or later that it's not going to be us. Um, we're going to see later on in this story that David does get to do some preparation work for it. I mean, he cares very much about this temple. It's going to be a, a marvelous, very elaborate structure to, to the glory of God. And, and David cares about the glory of God and he'll, he'll work for it. But... David has a prayer at the end of this chapter and he's, he's perfectly satisfied with God's choice. He feels very honored that God will build him a house, which I would guess he would feel honored about something like that. And from this point forward, it's understood that the Messiah is going to come from David. This is the foundation point for that. This, this prophecy that God's going to build him a house, that's the fundamental promise that the... That the um, Messiah is going to come from David. And it's interesting, if you go back in our history, we, 
this promise originally was given all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that this one was going to come from the seed of the woman. Um, that the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent and the serpent was going to bruise his heel. And as we kept reading in the book of Genesis, we found, we found the promise getting narrowed down and to where we found it was the, the, this promise one was going to come from Abraham. It was going to be in him that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Then Abraham had more than one son and it was, it was narrowed down to Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons and it was narrowed down to Jacob. Jacob had twelve sons. And which one was it narrowed down to? To Judah. At the end of the book of Genesis, we find out it's going to be from the tribe of Judah. But now we've gone hundreds of years and has not been narrowed down at all since then. David is from the tribe of Judah, but so are thousands of other people. And now it's narrowed down to David. And it does not get narrowed down again. This is the last time that it gets narrowed down like this. Um, it's I'm, Now I may be speaking out of order. I think maybe in the book of Zechariah it may be narrowed down one more time. We'll have to watch. But the next thing really is when we find in the book of Matthew that the gen- Matthew starts with the genealogy and we find that it covers all these people I've named and a bunch of descendants of David all the way down until you get to Jesus. Are there any questions before we leave chapter 17? Yeah, around. Did the, the people of uh, David or Solomon's time, did they, did they get that direct to the wife of the Yeah, they did. Um, they did. David wrote a number of psalms that, that show very clearly that he was that it was that, that's what what it was. Um, now I understand that as time went on, people people understood this more in more and more detail, and certainly by the time of Jesus, it, it was proverbial this, to call someone the son of David was to call him the Messiah. And you may recall some the time when the blind men said, "Oh, son of David, have mercy on us." They were calling him the Messiah. That's what that meant. Oh, but I'm pretty sure the people of David's own time knew knew that. Other questions? All right. Then in chapter 18, we have um, a series of of, of battles uh, and and campaigns. We we covered this in Kings. It's very similar to what we've had in Kings. Uh, this map shows the area of the, the conquests that uh, that David did. Um, and in this chapter, he he um, he subdues the Philistines. He didn't take the whole area, but you can see in green is the area that David conquered. I don't know that the Israelites generally lived in that area, but but that area was subject to David. They had to obey David's laws and they had to pay tribute and all that. And you notice even the the city of Gath, which was one of the five major cities of the Philistines, was conquered by him and and had to obey what he said to do. Um, then we have the Ammonites, we have the Moabites up here, the Syrians. Um, all these are, are dealt with in, in chapter 18. Now, at first glance, this seems like a strange thing to have in, the, in Chronicles. Although, I mean, Chronicles does talk about battles, but it's, it's not nearly as concerned with political events as it is with spiritual events. But I want to show you some things that the, the, the chronicler, when he records it, he kind of torques it toward the religious side, things that you, you might not find in Kings. 
Look down at verse um, 8. Also from Tibbeth and from Kun, cities of Hadadezer, David took a very large amount of bronze, with which Solomon made the bronze sea and the pillars and the bronze utensils. The bronze sea and the pillars, where were those? In the temple, yeah. So the chronicler is connecting these victories with the temple because it was these victories that gained, the, gained David a bunch of loot, really. Um, uh, things that he dedicated to the building of the temple. By the end, we're, we're in, in this morning's lesson, we see by the end of his life, he had accumulated a huge amount of gold and silver. I think he said he had a million talents of silver, a talent being roughly 75 pounds. So we're, we're talking about seven of a million... 750 um, or 75 million, 75 million pounds of silver. I mean, you, you, you could do a lot of work with that much silver. Right. It, it, it was all dedicated for the, for the temple. And, and also bronze. They didn't even give the weight of bronze. said it was so much you couldn't measure it. <laughs> and there was iron as well. Um, and so in all these victories that David is getting, he's getting tribute from these other countries and it's it's increasing the wealth of of the nation of Israel and the wealth is is increasing in, in multiple ways i mean he's first of all whenever he conquers a, a country he takes a bunch of loot uh, right on the spot and then secondly he he requires basic tax you know they have to pay tribute every year but thirdly a lot of trade's going to be happening as a result of this because because you have all this area under his control, they're not fighting among each other. It's at peace. You've got a big area that can do trading, and the trading can go even beyond that because certainly the Phoenicians, who were at peace with him, although he hadn't conquered them, they did a lot of ocean trade. That would come into Israel as well. Down south here, he had conquered Edom, and Edom actually has a port on the Red Sea. With that being under control of David, they, they would have trade going out that way. Uh, so, David's conquests enable the huge wealth that we find in the reign of Solomon. And, um, you may recall back when we studied Solomon, we're going to do him next week, of course, but back when we studied him, it, it talked a lot about um, all the different items of trade that were coming in every year to uh, to Israel. And that yeah. enabled, the, uh, enabled, the, enabled the peace that Solomon had. Right, yeah. Solomon was at peace because of David's conquests. Exactly. And it gave them the wealth to be able to build an elaborate temple. Which is, the, which is one of the main points of the whole book of Chronicles. Now in chapter 19... <coughs> We have a, an in-depth story of one of these conquests, and this this was the Ammonites. Um, Ammon, you see on the map, is just east of um, of where the Israelites were, east of the Jordan. We we've had troubles with them before. You may recall back in the Judges, they they'd beat up on the Israelites every so often, you know, subdue them for years, and then a judge would have to rescue them. Well, this is just an incredible story. David hears about. Uh, Nahash is the king of of Ammon dying, and his son becoming king. So he sends some, you know, highly respected ambassadors to um, to express their condolences. Just like you know, you'd send 
you know, if if somebody, you know, like like if the Queen of England died, either the either the President, Mr. Obama, will go over there to the funeral, or um, maybe an ex-president, maybe um, President Bush, will go over there to the funeral. Someone very, uh, you know, high, you know, exalted in, in terms of stature. So he sent these these um, messengers to to express you know his sorrow at it, and for reasons that I don't understand. They chose to interpret this as um, with ulterior motives, these guys are spies. And they insulted them terribly. What did they do to these poor guys? Shaved off their beards. Cut off their clothes from the hip down. I mean, it was just... um, And then sent them off that way. Um, And in those days, you know, none of these people shaved their beards off. I mean, if you didn't have a beard, it was either because... You know, you weren't old enough to grow a beard, or because you were a eunuch. Um, it was just—it was a terrible insult, and they—they they knew that, and so they understood this meant war. I mean, it was kind of a, a low-down way of declaring war, but that's what it was going to end up. So they then go and hire um, a bunch of mercenary soldiers to help, and and you have the first or or, or first or second battle in this war here. Um, Joab, David sends sends Joab with troops to stop the mercenaries from getting to Ammon. Um, they, um, the, the people he is hiring were coming from up there from the Syrians. and uh, In this translation they call Arameans, which I think is, is a more accurate translation. But that's where Syria is today, so we call them Syrians. Uh, and so Joab ended up with the battle on, on two fronts. And so he split his troops. It's one of the worst situations you can be in to have, you know, be attacked front and back. But he, he divided his troops in half, and he took half, and his brother took the other half. And, and it's interesting in verse 12, he says, If the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will help you. What alternative did he leave out? <laughs> yeah, what if, they're, what if they're both too strong for us? <laughs> that wasn't a choice. <laughs> be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what is good in His sight. And He sure did. Neither one had to help the other. They both, um, they both routed their own respective enemies. And then that began a long involved um, campaign of, of fighting that ended up with a complete defeat not only of the Ammonites but also of the Syrians. It, it just... Um... And then in chapter 8, um, they finish up that... They finish that war. And... Um, we got a few other little details of some of the great deeds that some of the warriors did. But... Um, it was during that war that what famous event happens that's, that's never recorded in Chronicles. It's recorded in Kings, pretty major. Yeah, yeah, David and Bathsheba. Um, it, notice in verse one, chapter twenty, verse one. It happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that Joab led out the army and ravaged the land of the sons of Ammon, and came and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. That's all it mentions. You go to Kings, you find out what was going on in Jerusalem, and it was unfortunate. It was 
one of the saddest times in David's life, of course, with the terrible deeds he ended up doing. Now, chapter 21, um, this story was told in Kings, but in Kings it was in an appendix at the end of his reign. We had several miscellaneous things that happened. In this case, it's a more major thing, and you'll see why in just a minute. Um, it says in verse 1, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. When the same story is told in Samuel, it was God that moved David to do this because God was angry with Israel. And when you combine the two, you, you learn a little bit about how God works. That Satan is not independent of God. Satan is not allowed to attack you or me without God's permission. If Satan is attacking you or if he's attacking me as he surely does very often, it's only because God has said, okay, you can do that much. And we have to understand that whatever Satan does, God has already measured it and He knows with God's help we can resist. Um, but in this case, God knew the sinfulness of the people of Israel. They needed to be punished as they end up being punished. It, we're not told why God was angry with them. We, and there's, I mean, we can guess, but I'm not going to do that right now. Um, but David was himself sinning. And it, we have to read a little bit in between the lines to understand what the sin was. Because when you, at first glance, you say, well, number of the people, what's wrong with that? I mean, they did it under Moses a couple times. Um, but in Samuel, well, in Chronicles as well, both Joab is opposed to this. And he's trying to talk David out of it. Now, that seems very odd because what kind of a man was Joab? He was not a, a man of God, although he, if you'd asked him, he would say, well, certainly I've, I'm very faithful to the Lord. Um, but he, he was a multiple murderer. Um, but he saw the problem even. And I mean, you have to... And that gives us a hint as to what the problem was. Um, it appears that David's goal here in numbering was a numbering for military use. He wanted to know how many soldiers he had and how many soldiers he could draw on when he, when he decided to do something. And, and Joab, I think Joab's objection to this was an objection based on the fact that he knew the people didn't want to become an armed camp. They didn't want the nation of Israel to turn into that kind of a nation. From God's perspective, the problem was pride. David was, was not looking at where his victories are coming from, i.e. God. David was looking at how many people do I have? That's how, that's how big a victory I can get. And the punishment ended up, he lost a lot of the people that had already counted. <laughs> um, and so in verse 8, I have sinned greatly, David says to God, in that I've done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. And God did. God forgave David, but there was a punishment that had to come with it. And this is the strangest punishment. How often does God give you the choice of what your punishment is for what you've done? <laughs> Would you like for God to give you the choice? <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> to me, that makes it even worse. I look at this choice. You can have three years of famine, three months to be swept away before your foes, or three days of the sword of the Lord, which is pestilence, plague. What are you going to go with? 
<laughs> David shows his attitude in his answer. And what's David's attitude? <laughs> yeah, let me follow the hand of God, which of course, since it, since he said it, the pestilence was sort of the Lord, he was choosing the last one. He wasn't choosing the last one because it was the shortest. He was choosing the last one because that one came directly from God. It was the sword of the Lord. I'll choose him because his mercies are great. He, running three months from from his enemies, his enemies don't have any mercy at all. God does, and in fact, the plague doesn't seem to have gone the whole three days. God stopped it before it was done. So just like David said, that was the way God was. His mercies were great. So God sent an angel, and they, he's going all around. This is in verse fourteen. This is chapter twenty-one. Seventy thousand men of Israel fell. Now he sends the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And it says, but the Lord saw and was sorry over the calamity, and he told the angel to stop. And where did the angel stop? In verse fifteen. Yes, it's the threshing floor of the Jebusite. Um, and then David says, "Is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? O Lord my God, please let your hand be against me and my father's household, but not against your people, that they should be plagued." Every so often in the in the story of the Bible, you have someone asking God to spare the people and put it on Him. And all those are ultimately looking to what? Jesus. To Jesus. When Jesus asked God to put our sins on Him, that we might not have to pay the price. And here you have the ancestor of Jesus making that statement. And, and watch the, the end result of this. It's, 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 it's amazing. Um, I've got to show you a map here. I'm going the wrong direction. Here we go. Two maps of Jerusalem. This is, this is what Jerusalem was in David's day. Now later on in the days of Nehemiah, I don't have a map in between, in the days of Nehemiah, here's Jerusalem. And this little pink area down here, that's, that matches over here. You see, it had grown a lot in the, in the years since David. You, you remember David began his reign by taking the fort that was on this, this hill here. The fort was owned by who? The Jebusites. And you notice how this guy who owns the threshing floor, what is he? He's a Jebusite. I don't think he was an enemy, though. He apparently has joined up with the Israelite. Here's where his threshing floor was. You see outside of town. The angel apparently is coming from the north and he gets to that threshing floor headed for Jerusalem and stops. God says, stop. So here's this angel. I don't know how big he was, but Ornan and his, uh, his sons could see it and they're terrified. <laughs> this is this huge angel. Um, and then, what does God tell David to do? Yeah, buy that threshing floor and build an altar there. And so the rest of chapter 21 tells about that as he goes to the threshing floor. He buys the threshing floor. He tells how much he pays for it and all that. And he builds an altar and he offers a burnt offering there. Why is this such a big deal? Why does the chronicler think this is so important? Yeah, look at this map over here. You see, here's David's palace. Here's the city of David. Threshing floor of Araunah, and it comes out to be where the temple was. That was that was the temple. Um, 
Um, let me see. I think he even says this somewhere. Yeah, chapter 22, verse 1. David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. That was the location. And so from that time forward, in the days of Jesus, that was still where the temple was. Right where... And you see the connection here. David offers to be the sacrifice of the people. God stops the angel from destroying the people. And the, the sacrifice is offered there in, in thankfulness to God for staying His hand and not destroying the people. And then you fast forward another thousand years to the son of David. And in this same city, Jesus offers Himself as, a, as the sacrifice for the people. And God's wrath is poured out on Him that the people are, are spared. Well, not inside the walls. No. It, Jesus was crucified outside the walls, and I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, we'll have when we get to that point, we'll have to get a, a New Testament map of Jerusalem. See, this is in the days of Nehemiah. It, it changed even more by the time of, of Jesus. Is that the the, the uh, towns that are in purple? Is that still Jerusalem? Or is that a different city? Oh, Jerusalem's even bigger than that today. No, I mean in Nehemiah's time. Is that a different city? No, no, this is Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. They had different sections of Jerusalem, like this section was called the Mishnah, um, but it was still part of Jerusalem. Just like in Bangor, you have you know, different sections like Cape Heart and you know Little City and other places like that. They're all part of Bangor. Um, these, these are all. If, if it's inside the wall, it's part of Jerusalem. Um, All right, just um, a few miscellaneous things now to go. In fact, I think I'll turn that off because that's all we had to say about that. Um, in um, in chapter twenty-two or twenty-three, rather. Um, well, in chapter twenty-two, David starts preparing for the building of the temple, and this this made Solomon's life a lot easier. When he built the temple, how, how many years did it take Solomon to build it? Seven. It took him seven years to build it, but it took him thirteen years to build his palace. Well, David hadn't prepared for his palace; David only prepared for the, for the temple. So he 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 was already halfway there with the temple, and so David charges Solomon to do that job, and David organizes people to do it, and, and materials and everything. And that's where it mentions he's he's got a hundred thousand talents of gold, he's got a million talents of silver. Huge amount. Then in um, chapter 23, um, David did some organizing. And so in verse 3, the Levites were numbered from 30 years old and upward. And notice in verse 4, of these, 24,000 were to oversee the work of the house of the Lord, and 6,000 were officers and judges. <coughs> They're going to oversee the work that Solomon's going to do. David David's getting everything ready. I mean, God says you can't do it, and he doesn't do it, but he gets everything ready. He comes right up, right up to the line. And there's an explanation given down in um, verse 26. He says, also the Levites will no longer need to carry the tabernacle and all its utensils for its service. The major job of the Levites up until this point has been carry the tabernacle. When you replace it with a temple, what are they going to do? David's answer that in this chapter. He's given them new work. 
Initially, the new work is going to be oversee the building of the temple. But after that, there's other things to be done. And so he, he in, in the rest of the chapter, he tells them some of the things they're going to do. And, and their work included things like assisting the priests, offering their sacrifices in the temple. Um, in verse 30, standing every morning to thank and to praise the Lord, and likewise in the evening. Um, in another place, not in this chapter, they had the... They had the job of guarding the gates into the temple. So um, they're still separate to God, but they're, because the, uh, the situation with the tabernacle has changed, their work changed. Then in chapter 24, um, he, he divides up the priests. And there are... There's so many priests in David's time that he divided them into how many different orders of priests? Twenty-four. Yes, and that number of orders remained true from then on. In Jesus' day, they still had the twenty-four orders of priests, and and we'll get to a story about of Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist. His order was serving in the temple at a certain time, and that's when he got a vision. Well, his order was one of these 24 that David had established, and they took turns. Different, you know, I think each one would, would have a week on, and then next, and the next week it would be a different order. So every 24 weeks your order, it would come your order's turn again. How many high priests were there? Well, there, were only supposed to be, there was only supposed to be one high priest. In David's time, there, there happened to be two for a short time, which we talked about that when we were doing Kings. But there's really just one, one high priest. But all these 24 orders are descended from Aaron, the original high priest. Then in chapter 25, he organizes the musicians. And we talked last week about how this was something new, this public performance of music. Um, at the time it was in the tabernacle, but ultimately it's going to be in the temple. And there were certain people that were... Um, that were especially qualified. Asaph is one of the ones, and if you've read many of the Psalms, you probably have noticed some written by the sons of Asaph. Uh, that, that this is where that got started. Asaph was in David's day, um, and so then he and, and and his fellow musicians would train people to be musicians, and they would and they'd be part of their group, and they perform in the temple uh, songs of praise to God, worship songs. Um, when the people came together. In chapter 26, we have the gatekeepers. I'd mentioned that earlier that would guard the different gates into the, into the temple. And they had some who were in charge of the treasury of the temple. Um, most of the stuff I, I expect you find rather boring. <laughs> A little bit difficult to read. Um, but from the standpoint of the person writing it, it all connected with the temple and its services to God and at the time when it was written, which was probably in the days of Ezra, uh, the temple worship had kind of fallen lax, and, they, and he was trying to inspire the people to, to, to bring it back up to the level that was worthy of, of the God of, of all the earth. And so the reminders of these times when David had very carefully arranged things for the worship and, and, and arranged the building of the temple... The chapter after chapter dealing with just emphasizes the great importance of it. And, and that's, I think, what the author had in mind here. 
And then finally, the last chapter we read for this morning was, was chapter 27, when um, we read a number of different famous names in, in David's administration. It begins with the commanders of the army. He divided them up into uh, groups of 24,000. And he had 12 different groups, a different um, army commander in charge of each of the 24,000. And apparently they each, each of the 24,000 would serve one month on and then they'd be off the other 11 months. Now obviously if you had a war, you'd call everyone in, but you know, just for as a standing army, that's the way they worked it. And that lists various people in his administration. And one of the things that I thought was interesting was in verse 33, it says Ahithophel was counselor to the king and Hushai the archite was the king's friend. That, as far as I know, that's the only mention of Ahithophel in the book of Chronicles. Does anyone know anything else about the man? Well, he made the wrong choice. David was, uh... <laughs> he, he turned traitor and, and helped David's son to rebel against David. And then when he saw that his advice wasn't being taken, what did he do about it? He, he hung himself, yeah. Just like Judas. Yes, just, he really is the Old Testament type of Judas. But in Chronicles, he's just mentioned. He's just one of the, on the list. <laughs> it just it just illustrates the difference between the two books. They they have a different the different um, different goal in mind. And in Chronicles, you never read about David's son uh, rebelling against him. None of those terrible things. It just all we we read we do read about David's sin and numbering the people. We don't read about his sin with Bathsheba. It's just a it's just a different, um, different take on his reign because it's trying to get something else out of it. The main point of David's reign from Chronicles is he's the one that prepared for the temple because <laughs> that's the important thing. Well, um, that's this. That's the lesson for this morning. Any final questions or comments? Yeah, John. In chapter twenty-seven, it, it gives these numbers of commanders of the army. In these cases, uh, twenty-four thousand. And the twelve of those, which is uh, is that two hundred and eighty-eight thousand? Yep. Okay. When we go back to uh, uh, chapter twenty-five, that gets the total number of singers in verse seven, and that's two hundred eighty-eight. <laughs> okay, one singer per thousand <laughs> troops. <laughs> Not sure if that's the way they worked it, but <laughs> all right. Anything else? All right. I appreciate everyone's help this morning. <laughs> I was just thinking we're blessed with two songs. <laughs> <laughs>